Hey, Kareem Sirajuddin here, founder of Nude Human Consulting. The Coffee with Kareem podcast aims to provide Muslims and people of all backgrounds a space to share their life gifts, meet dynamic guests, and enhance the human experience one cup of coffee at a time. Sit back and sip. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have an esteemed guest, Dr. Joseph Nicolosi Jr. He is a licensed clinical psychologist and neuroscientist with a PhD from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. He's the founder of the Breakthrough Clinic, which specializes in treating trauma and addiction. He lectures around the world on the topic of psychology. His father created reparative therapy which is famous for treating men with unwanted same-sex attractions. His father treated more men with unwanted same-sex attractions than anyone else in history. Over 1,000 patients documented. Dr. Joseph Nicolosi Jr., thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Kareem. Excellent, excellent. So your your father, Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, um, you know, he has been pretty prominent in supporting the reparative therapy approach, which seems to be quite controversial in, in modern day narrative around this subject matter of LGBTQ and whether or not this is a genetic disposition versus um, a combination of, you know, nurture and nature. Uh, what, what, how is that, what was that like being Dr. Joseph's son and, and growing up with this kind of uh, theme or mission that he uh, represented? You use the right word, uh, mission. Um, he did have a sense of mission about this, and um, it was kind of a family thing. My mom would work with him to write his books, and um, there was definitely a mission. There was definitely um, uh, a sense that um, you know we are going to stand up for these people who are not being talked about. These are the what my father called the non-gay homosexual, the man who has same-sex attractions but does not identify as gay. And um, that these are a legitimate population of people who deserve to be uh, addressed and, and cared for and that their values have meaning. Um, and so I think he, he definitely had a sense of mission about this. Mm. And tell us more about your upbringing. Well, um, I grew up with, <laughs> with psychology uh, talked about at the dinner table. <laughs> and, um, and I guess I just always grew up with it. Um, and so it was just a normal conversation. Um, just throughout the day. I think my father's work has been, um, it's at the, a, a place where a lot of different fields intersect. Um, psychology, um, the scientific method, values, philosophy, anthropology. Um, so I think it, I think it was conversations normally, uh, bounced around between those different topics. Got it. And, um, Tell us more about when you decided you wanted to become a psychologist or a therapist. Was this something you knew early on in your life, or did you find yourself just kind of following in the footsteps of the family business, so to speak? Growing up, people would ask me, are you going to follow in the footsteps of your father? And I, I would always shrink back at that, like, oh, I don't want to just follow my father's footsteps. And I would usually say no, or I'm not sure. Um, and I think it was... Uh, I think I had it was having the opportunity to meet men who had gone through this process, this therapy, and seeing the shift in them, seeing just how they carry themselves, their their bodily uh, posture, their tone, their um, they, these men 
through the course of the therapy would gain a sense of assertion in them and I could see the power of it. And that really got me curious. And that is what drew me into um, this work. It wasn't anything other than really seeing the shifts in these people. Mm -hmm. Now, did you grow up in what would be defined a kind of liberal sociocultural environment? Yeah, I'm out here in Southern California in the LA area. We're not far from from Hollywood. And so in many ways, yeah, the culture around the culture around me in Southern California is definitely more liberal. Um, many of my friends would kind of cock their head to the side and kind of look at me kind of confused when I would des describe, um, you know, reparative therapy. Like, what is this? And why would people want to change? What is that about? I mean, obviously, many people who grew up in certain environments, they are going to attach or internalize the common narrative about certain things. And um, in California, I mean, you ask anybody on the street, is being homosexual a choice or not? Most people would say, of course, it's not a choice. You know, it's it's been proven that this is genetic and it's it's an inherent uh, quality that is you're you're born with. So, how how did you kind of reconcile what was the dominant opinion and what was maybe happening as far as your father's career? I think I understood my father's ideas, but what really helped me do that reconciliation you mentioned is meeting the men and hearing their stories firsthand and watching the shifts in them occur. Um, that was that was really what helped me reconcile those two things. What is the difference between being gay and being homosexual according to the school of thought of reparative therapy? It's, it's interesting, and it is important that we define our terms right up front. Um, the word homosexual is, and I, the idea is essentially that the person is predominantly attracted to individuals of the same sex. But the word gay is a more recent idea. It's a more social political idea. We've used historically in the, in the English language, gay used to mean happy. And that word has been now used for people who take on a gay identity. It's basically, um, it's a social political identity that this is who I am, I'm gay, I'm happy, this is who I am, this is how I want to be, and this is something to be celebrated. And that is distinct from people who have same-sex attractions, because not all people who have same-sex attractions have values that line up with it. And so, consequently, they don't take on a gay identity. And we've been told, largely due to the mainstream media, that gay and homosexual are the exact same thing. Well, historically, that's absolutely untrue. The word gay, that idea, is a relatively recent phenomenon. Other cultures, other ancient civilizations did not have that idea, despite what many people would have us believe. Right, and it's interesting that the word gay is used because it just kind of automates that no matter what, you should be happy about this. But it doesn't leave room for individual choice or even reflection to go, well, maybe this isn't something I'm, I'm very comfortable with, right? And it, it may not even have anything to do with morality per se. But for instance, I just think to myself, you know, what if you have, a, let's say, a woman who identifies as lesbian and, you know, deep down inside, there is a part of her that would like to have a child of her own, right? And if she's told that this is something that you can never achieve, you know, like natural uh, pregnancy, so to speak, um, then she's now put in a place where this isn't a dream or an opportunity or a potential that she could ever pursue, especially if things like reparative therapy are, are never known or we're not educated about this as a possible avenue for treatment. Does, is the, would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. It, it's a very self-limiting term. It actually does more harm than good. Um, and I'll give you a few examples. I was speaking to a guy who said, this is not a client of mine, um, but another man I know who um, 
he said, yeah, you know, I'm gay and people, people would know him as gay, but I spoke to him one-on-one and I said, listen, have you ever had an attraction toward a woman in your entire life? Have you ever had a sexual or romantic attraction? He said, yeah. He said, 90% of my attractions are toward men, but you know, every once in a while, you know, one out of 10 times my attractions are toward women. And I said, okay, so why do you call yourself gay? And he kind of shrugged and rolled his eyes. And he said, I know there are so many people. He said, he said, I live in Hollywood and there are so many people who would pressure me to say that you're gay. But when I say, well, I don't know. I mean, gay is this idea that I'm exclusively attracted to men, isn't it? Or that's the identity. And I'm, if I'm taking on a social political identity, what do I do with these other attractions? And he described an enormous pressure to um, to not talk about those attractions toward women, that, that other people wouldn't understand him, that he might even be uh, considered being, um, he felt, like he's betraying the gay movement. Mm. Now, but but there is kind of a solution for that, this idea of being bisexual, right? Like that you can be attracted to both sides. And part of the discourse around the subject matter of sexuality is, you know, this idea of sexual fluidity, right? And that you can even have different phases of your life where you're more drawn to different energetics or attraction. Um, but yet, you know, it tends to uh, lean or go to one side more so than the other. Is that even accurate? Or can you maybe break that down for us a bit further, this idea of sexual fluidity and, and how that works exactly? Yeah, sexual fluidity is an idea that is definitely becoming increasingly popular, especially among younger people. And that's where things get interesting, because normally older people are more conservative and younger people are more liberal. You go anywhere in the world, and that's generally the case. However, Younger people today, millennials, are much more open to the idea of sexual fluidity. And that's interesting for my treatment population. My clients are actually benefiting from this. Because if you ask somebody over 40, you know, are people born gay, they're more likely to say yes. If you say, hey, would therapy work for a person to go from gay to straight? They're more likely to be skeptical or say, I'm not sure. But younger people, I'm talking millennials, I'm talking people... 35 or even 30 and younger, especially 20 and younger, they're much more open to the idea that sexuality can change. And it's kind of an old-fashioned, it, it seems to be becoming an old-fashioned idea now that if you have a homosexual attraction, that must mean you're gay and you'll always be that way and you'll never change. Younger and younger people are rejecting that notion. And that's great for my clients. Interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that, that if we accept the construct of sexual fluidity, then it surely can apply to any type of sexuality. Right. Right. Of course. You could you could even argue heterosexuals could have fluidity towards homosexuality at some point as well. So so it is it does work both ways, so to yes, speak. Exactly. And people listening right now, no matter what their background is, we all have to ask ourselves a question. At the end of the day, what defines a person? All of us are gonna have to ask ourselves that question. What defines a person? In the case of my clients, who are men with unwanted same-sex attractions, what ultimately defines them? If you say their desires, their, their homosexual desires define them, well, that's, that's, the, um, that's the gay ideology. If you have these attractions, you are gay, here's your new identity. And that's what the media is, has, is having us believe. But that is something that most cultures in the world don't believe. In fact, all religions, Eastern and Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, I could go on and on and on. All of these ancient teachings tell us that our desires don't form the core of our identity. Our values define the core of our identity. And for all human beings, there are going to be certain parts of our lives where our values 
and our desires contradict. That's part of being a human being. And so which one really defines us? Which one are we going to give the power to define our identity? And for these individuals of faith from around the world who say, no, my desires don't form my immutable identity, it's going to be my values, those are the people who are going to find a problem with this extreme gay ideology that, that we've been sold. Right. No, that's a good point because, you know, when I think about myself, I don't think about myself in terms of sexuality. Like, oh, I love brunettes, you know, so I'm a, I'm a right. br- brunetter or something. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't think about it like that. I think about how I, I'm a multifaceted being, right? I have emotions. I have mental uh, processes. I have spirituality. I have sexuality. I have my biological aspects. There's different things that make me up. And then, of course, there are the things that I relate to internally, whether they be desires or values. And I'm sure everybody has desired or wanted to do something, but there was a value or even a social repercussion which held them back. I mean, even when you think about married individuals, right, whether they're um, uh, hetero or homosexual, um, depending on even your value system, um, having an affair, even though you might desire to do so, may not be appropriate for a lot of people, regardless of how you feel and what you want. Exactly. Can you tell us more about what is reparative therapy and, and why does it even matter and how does it really work? Because I think it's um, it's often you know belittled, rejected, or considered just ascientific, irrational. So how does it even exist today and, and how is it still growing? In order for us to have a meaningful understanding, we should start with the client's motivations. Why would a person want to change their sexuality? Is it because is it simply because society doesn't accept them, that they belong to these old-fashioned repressive religious systems that frankly are so outdated we need to just let go of them? Or is there something else? So first, let me tell you what the motivations are for individuals who come to see me. Then I'll tell you about the development of same-sex attractions. And then lastly, let me tell you about what does it look like? What are some practical examples of a person changing his sexuality. So the motivation of of people who come to see me usually is a combination of three factors. One is individuals who come to me because they were abused as children. They were sexually abused. And there was somebody um, of the same sex who, um, who got involved in their lives, and they were these people who, my clients were usually these men who were lacking male uh, connection and male affection. We call it the three A's, male attention, male affection, male approval. They were longing for this, and somebody, an older man came along and um, gave them some of those needs, but then led them down a sexual path. And so these are individuals who say, look, you know, um, I went through... Um, I was sexually abused when I was young, and because of this life-changing experience, I am now left with feelings that I can't seem to get rid of, and they don't match up with my values, and I don't want them. And you know, the compassionate thing to do, I believe, is not to tell these people, oh, well, you, I guess you just have to live it out. I guess the only way you're going to be happy is to embrace a gay identity. No, my job as a therapist is to say, well, wait a second, let's look at that. Let's explore what happened. And as we work through the trauma, we see across the board, these clients describe their same-sex attractions decrease spontaneously. So we, so number one, we have the people who come from uh, a background where they were traumatized. Number two is individuals uh, who are, who are um, they're people of faith, and their faith teaches them that they were created heterosexual. And respect for the basic tenets of their faith means 
that we don't just kind of get dismissive. Oh, that's just your beliefs and you need to drop those. We say, well, okay, look, those are your values. Let's work with that. Let's explore that. Um, so they're people of faith who say that this that these attractions don't match up with my values. And I want to see, I want to explore if I can change my desires so that they come in line with my values. That's the second group. The third group is individuals who they don't, they weren't sexually abused. They don't even have a, a religious background of any sort. These are individuals who strictly come to me for pragmatic reasons. And they say, homosexuality doesn't work for me. I've done the gay thing. I explored it for years. I took on a gay identity. And you know what? I got to be honest. It's not solving anything for me. There's this emptiness that I carry with me. And homosexuality, which I thought would lead me to this lasting solution, hasn't. And I want to now explore heterosexuality. I want to explore my options. And I believe these individuals have a right to explore that. They have the freedom and the right to explore these things um, and determine what's best for them. Right. Just like we would also argue that people who identify themselves as gay should be allowed to explore their life paths and be able to, to you know, get married and have the same civil rights as anybody else, because this is about treating humans equally. So why is it that when a person may would like to experience or explore the potential for um, a heterosexual lifestyle after the fact that they experienced a lifestyle that was homosexual. Why would we reject that? Why do you think it's happening? I think people are shocked that the, at the idea that tolerance goes both ways. They're shocked at the idea that diversity actually includes people who may not want to be gay. And real inclusivity, and these are all the buzzwords we throw around, tolerance, inclusion. It, it also includes people who say, you know what? I don't want to be gay. I explored it. It's not for me. Now I want to explore something else. And uh, it's, it's shocking because people think that coming out means only going in one direction. And the media is not bringing attention to this population of people. They don't know what to do with them. Right. So let me summarize the three categories that generally come to you for treatment or come to your clinic. The first one is um, individuals who have had the unfortunate experience of some type of sexual abuse in the past, usually by a same-sex um, predator. Yeah. The second one are individuals who may have inclinations or gay lifestyles, but because of their value system or faith-based system, um, they want to um, work on it because it doesn't it doesn't uh, fall in harmony with a specific worldview that they ascribe to, which again is is up to you, right? Everyone has the right to believe or not believe in whatever they want. That's that's part of what makes America great. And number three is some people actually have nothing to do with faith or morality. It's a matter of you know pragmatism, as you described, or you know wanting to explore alternative lifestyles. Is that accurate? Exactly. And and for number one, the category of cases where there was sexual abuse, is there data that shows us that people who are sexually abused by same-sex individuals have a higher likelihood of experiencing um, or identifying with homosexuality or, or being gay in their future? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is often denied, but absolutely. The evidence shows that. No question. And I would say that that's panning out in, in, our, in our clinic. Um, I would say about one third of my clients who were sec were sexually abused when they were young, whether it was overtly sexual abuse or someone who was sexually manipulating the client, showing him pornography when he was young, um, just kind of sexualized touch. Definitely that that happened in at least to at least a third of my clients. 
Mm-hmm. Now, let's take an individual who, you know, there was no sexual abuse, there was no exposure to same-sex, um, you know, content like pornography or these types of things. Um, what could be some of the other variables that could uh, nurture or influence this situation to have same-sex attraction? You mentioned something about a masculine energy and the three A's. I think it was um, attention, affection, and approval. So does this also have to do with the role of a masculine presence in one's life? Um, if so, how could you maybe explain that to us and, and help us understand a bit more of this role of parents? Yeah, so this seems to be the basic model. Um, as um, as children go, as they grow up, they go through their different developmental stages and males and females, um, have basically identical developmental stages, psychological developmental stages up until about two and a half years of age, give or take a few months, give or take three months. So two and a quarter, two and three quarters. But this, this general time is what's called the gender identity phase of development. And we see this in children across the world. This is the first time where the boy has an additional developmental task that the girl doesn't have, which is to disidentify from the mother and identify with the father. And this is usually when kids are into Superman and Spider-Man and Iron Man. And, you know, you'll notice it's always man. <laughs> man. My favorite was Batman. Batman. How about you? <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so the boys get all into whatever man and they, they, and in all cultures, it's going to be different, but they, they have boys at this age, get this kind of euphoric sense of being a male and they want to connect with other guys. They, um, there's this, this kind of, you know, that's the age of the terrible twos. No, you know, no is about individuating. No, I'm going to be separate. I'm going to be different. I'm going in my own direction. And so this is that's part of the gender identity phase of development where the boy is starting to say no to mommy and he's trying to kind of push away and he's starting to connect to other guys. Well, in in homes in which there can be a more distant, detached father, a more overly involved, sometimes intrusive, higher anxiety mother. And when the son is temperamentally sensitive, if you put these factors together, it seems to increase the probability that the boy is going to have difficulty at this particular stage of development. Add to it, if there's a, a, a bullying older brother, that's an optional fourth uh, component. If you put mm-hmm. these factors together, they will make it harder for that boy to make that gender identity shift. The boy will try to reach out to the father and connect with him and identify with him. And if the other males don't reciprocate, that boy, who's already more temperamentally sensitive, he will experience a hurt. And he feels inadequate in his masculinity and he goes back to his mother and he kind of drops that whole masculine striving thing. And as this guy gets older, females, he knows very well. Um, But to him, uh, and I'm describing my clients now, this is how my clients describe their childhoods. They'll say, um, females I was familiar with, males were like a mystery to me. And growing up, I got a lot of female attention, affection, approval but I didn't get the male attention, affection, approval. And my male peers are out there and they're doing these kind of rough and tumble behaviors. They're wrestling. They're out playing. They're out playing sports. They're doing all these different things. And I, I, I don't feel like I fit in. In fact, for many of my clients, these kinds of things are intimidating to them. And they want to connect to guys, but they feel ill at ease around males. And try as they might, um, 
the girls around them just don't quite make up for their lack of male connection. And so as these guys get older um, and they've been lacking that male attention, affection, approval, eventually puberty occurs around age 12, 13, 14. And I feel like their kids are getting hit with it sooner and sooner because of Internet connection. Um, you know, they're, they're being exposed to sexualized material and hearing and seeing things that kids in previous generations never would. But these kids are now exposed to it. And where are their sexual attractions going to go to? Not toward females who are safe and familiar, but toward males. The males are exotic. The males are exciting. Um, the male body has this kind of mystique. And so my clients describe this kind of pull. And for them, um, it's not a moment of decision. Like, you know, they don't decide to be gay. It's not like they chose it um, or decided or chose to have same-sex attractions, but it was like a process of discovery. It was like this kind of zing that they would describe, like this energy in their body right around early adolescence, and eventually it becomes sexualized. And the guy will try to pray for it to go away. He'll try to he'll try to uh, ignore the thoughts. He'll try to manufacture feelings for girls, and oftentimes he feels confused. And that is where the same-sex attractions are. And people will sometimes say to him, and this compounds the problem, they say, oh, you've always been different. That's just how you always were. I knew from when you were young that you were different. And the guy goes, oh, maybe I've just kind of always been this way. Maybe I'm kind of in a different category. And then the gay label uh, brings usually relief, but also it's a burden to the guy. Because if he takes on the gay identity, the relief is, okay, there's a name for this. There's a community like this. I can, I feel a sense of being welcomed. That's a good thing. But the, the problem is that the gay label brings a new liability. The new liability is it's basically saying, um, yes, I really am in a different category from other men. There's, quote, regular guys, but I'm a different type of guy. I'm a gay guy. And that label actually, for many men, further compounds this problem because it's like an affirmation that I'm really different from other men. And so these are the guys who come to my office and um, they're confused. Um, society says you just need to accept yourself. But these guys say it doesn't it doesn't work for me. And after a thousand men, literally, truly a thousand men came to see my father uh, and they described across the board. The guys would fly in from other parts of the world and they would describe very, very similar family backgrounds. And um, we live in a world now where we have to chalk it up to, well, I guess maybe it's just a gay gene. But after the overwhelming evidence of this pretty clear pattern, we have to say, you know, it's something other than genetics. So it makes sense when I kind of think about the process you just walked me through. So it almost sounds like it's a matter of healthy gender identity, if you will. Exactly. Right. Or, or not feeling like you are other than what is um, biologically uh, reflecting of you. Right. The same biology, like the boys on the playground or, or whatever it is. But I, but I kind of want to challenge that because for some people, they're like, well, no, gender is a choice, too. Right. My identity of gender is a choice and it doesn't necessarily have to correspond to my biological makeup. So if, if I accept that, then it almost puts this model of reparative therapy, um, you know, to the side, so to speak. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? The, the general causal rule is that gender identity. De now, there's exceptions to this, but generally gender identity determines sexual orientation, meaning that we eroticize 
that which we are not identified with. How, how does that happen exactly? How, how does it go from, you know, something being mysterious or this mystique, like i.e. a masculine energy or, or these types of guys or boys, you know, how does this emotional void, so to speak, eventually become eroticized and sexualized? Okay, so sexuality is all about bonding and connection. And so when we when the boy has a pre-existing desire to get male attention, affection, approval, a built-up hunger, um, that, that's what my, my clients describe, the sexuality feels like a shortcut to getting that feeling met. It's like, wow, I, I can suddenly just get that connection. I can get that touch. I can get that. I can be this guy's sole focus. He's interested in me. Um, and it's like it feels like an immediate shortcut. And that's the eroticization that, that takes place. I see. So eroticism is also about bonding and feeling connected as well. And that is a, would you say that's kind of a compartment of sexuality? I mean, I think it is absolutely. We're neurobiologically pre-programmed for this. Our body, I mean, I'm going to be blunt here. I'm going to be scientific and blunt, but, but during orgasm, individuals release a, a lot of, um, a lot of oxytocin and that's like a bonding chemical. We feel a sense of euphoria of closeness. Um, it feels like just wanting to that, that person to be very, very close. And that, that's where we get this, uh, you know, the person get a sudden boost of that when the desire becomes sexualized. Right. And I, and as somebody who, you know, helps people with, um, uh, sexual addictions like pornography, and I know your clinic also specializes in this, you know, I've noticed that individuals do describe this sense of, you know, certain types of content, which was even shocking to them, right, provides them this pleasure. And I've always seen it or understood it as, yeah, obviously, if you condition yourself to make associations of pleasure with certain things, right, then of course, that's going to be the thing that you're attached to, to seek pleasure. And I always give a simple example of like smoking, like if the first time you try smoking, I, I haven't met anyone who said, wow, that was amazing. <laughs> that was delicious, right? right? But why is it that you have people that they love smoking cigarettes, they can't live without it. And it, it, it tastes like vanilla to them, right? They've associated this pleasure right. um, principle to something like smoking, where anybody who's not a smoker and is around it, it could easily disgust them or make them feel nauseated. Yet, there are people that um, will feel that if they don't get to smoke, right? So is this also have to do with conditioning, uh, the human uh, psychology? And does neuroplasticity have anything to do with this? Yeah. So let's just talk about neuroplasticity real quick. And let's define that for the for the normal people who don't know what that means. <laughs> neuroplasticity is the idea that our brain can change based off of our life experiences. And every week, a new study seems to come out that shows that there is a such thing as neuroplasticity. Our brain can rewire itself in ways which we've never even known before. And it's remarkable, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. And that idea certainly reinforces our notion that sexuality is fluid that sexuality is not set in stone for all people forever and so there is a, the, the neuroplasticity evidence lends itself to this idea that people can really change their sexuality um that's not it's it's not this uh pre-programmed thing so um but to go back to something earlier that you said you talked about associations and associations are a big part of it um and i do think that pornography use uh, for anyone, uh, no matter what their sexual orientation, it can reinforce neural pathways. But if we really want to understand the topic of these uh, these sexual attractions and these clients, we have to look at it through an attachment lens. It's a, it's a it's an attachment issue. These guys consistently describe a lack of attachment to other males. They have a hunger to connect with other guys, 
and other other male peers got a lot of male touch when they were young. They got to wrestle, and they're they're uh, you know they're just having a blast with each other. And these guys didn't get it, and there's a built-up need, and they oftentimes are very conflicted. And um, we have to understand this as an attachment lens. We talked about attention, affection, approval. You know, if if a person is devoid of vitamins, right? We need vitamins and we need minerals in order to to get our nutrition. If a person doesn't get vitamins, you don't say, oh, well, I know, let's just double the minerals. Well, that's not a solution. And so if the person, if the guy is lacking male attention, affection, approval, the solution is not to double up on the female attention, affection, approval. And that's what my clients usually had. They had a lot of that female connection, but not that male connection. And it's this is really an attachment issue. Um, these are men who, at their very core, they consistently report to me that they have a hunger to deeply connect with another man, to have another man see them as valuable, as desirable, to want to bond with them, to um, all the things that these guys lost out on in many ways in uh, in their childhood. So it's almost like trying to fulfill this deep void on multiple levels as far as intimacy, gender identity, attachment, um, feeling accepted, so to speak, right? But, but again, couldn't somebody just fulfill those things without it getting sexualized? Well, yes, but there are two issues with that. Number one is my clients oftentimes don't feel equipped to get that in a non-sexual way. Interesting. Um, remember, they didn't, they didn't, yeah, they don't feel equipped. Their their relationships with their fathers, their relationships with their peers, their relationships with their older brothers were such that that led these guys to feel like they feel oftentimes ill at ease around men, especially especially men who can intimidate them. And so it's hard for them to get that attention, affection, approval. And besides which, um, there's a certain intensity that sexuality gives them. It's, it's an intense sexual feeling. Um, and it feels like, ah, this is the shortcut I can get. And so um, that those those two reasons draw the man toward homosexuality. So let me ask you this. Let's say you have a family, okay, where there's two boys, brothers, and one of them grows up to identify as gay and the other one doesn't. How would we explain this based on this model of reparative therapy? I mean, you might say like, well, you know, both of them had the same absent father or hostile father or whatever the cocktail that you described uh, needs to be to, to increase the probability of, of homosexuality. So why is it that you have situations where, you know, you could have two males in a family, siblings, and one of them comes out um, homosexual and the other one is heterosexual. How would you explain that? Oftentimes we do see that. Actually, we see that with identical twins sometimes, uh, genetically identical uh, identical twins. Really? really? Absolutely. Sure. Which actually gives evidence to the idea that this is not genetic, because if it's true, then why on earth do we see uh, identical twins? One will say he's gay and the other one doesn't. No, this is about these early childhood experiences, and we often see in families that um, one will be dad's favorite and the other one will be mom's favorite. We'll see different experiences. And also birth order is important. If there's a an older brother who is the more um, bullying one, that adds that additional compounding factor that I mentioned. So it really is about a constellation of factors. Also, um, although I, I don't believe in a gay gene, and by the way, let me just say, there's no such thing as a gay gene. We're never going to find a gay gene. And here's the reason why. Whether It doesn't matter what the organism is. It could be a, a turtle or, a, or an orangutan or a person. It doesn't matter. But if there's any gene that would instruct an organism not to couple with members of the opposite sex, but instead to attempt to do so with members of the same sex, that would, by definition, be a self-destruct gene. 
So you're never going to find that gene. But back to the childhood dynamics. Mm. Um, in these homes, though there isn't a gay gene, some individuals are more temperamentally sensitive. And so, um, you know, it might not take as, as much malattunement by a father. Um, it could just be a little bit of ignoring by the father. But this particular boy who has more sensitivity, he really personalizes that. That really hurts him. And so he is going to retreat back to, to the world of females a little more quickly than another boy. That's not a gay gene, but it does take into account the kid's temperamental sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting you brought that up about the gene because, you know, Obviously, evolutionary biology teaches us that there are mutations, and um, without mutations, we wouldn't have the variations in populations, and some of these mutations are harmful, neutral, or beneficial for the species, and that's kind of what determines which genes get passed on. But a question I always asked myself was, if, if, being, uh, if there was a gay gene, then how did it get passed on? Exactly. <laughs> because you're, you're not able to breed... I mean, one of the things that evolutionary biology dictates is in order for um, traits, certain genetic traits to be passed on is through offspring. So if 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 being gay is a gene, then how did it get passed on? Because they're not going to be reproducing with females, right? How does a self-destructing get passed on? Well, if it did a good job of self-destructing, then it couldn't get passed on. Right. Unless you accept this idea of sexual fluidity, which means that even if you had men in the past who identified as homosexual or felt this inclination, they were probably still breeding with women at some point because that's how the gene got passed on. So either way, it still strengthens this idea of sexual fluidity. Would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. It makes complete sense. If we really want to break it down, if, if, we, if, if gay means, if we really go with a gay ideology, right, meaning this is how I am, I was born this way, I'll always be this way, and I'm just, you know, just attracted to men and that's it. And that, if we really look at that, we have to ask ourselves, well, wait a second, if we break it down, why is the most gay guy on earth producing, if he's a healthy guy, why is he producing 100 million sperm cells every 24 hours and all 100 million sperm cells are right now feverishly looking for an egg cell? At least part of the man is heterosexual. We have to say that from a purely biological perspective. If, if, he, if gay is who he is and from top to bottom, then someone needs to tell his reproductive system that because um, 100 million sperm cells seem to think something quite different. Right. So there is an aspect of you know, denying or overlooking what we would consider basic biological mechanisms according to evolutionary biology and what we understand in the majority of scientific community to be how the species evolved to become human beings. Right, exactly. That's right. Okay, so, but but here's the thing, Dr. Joseph. I mean, I, there's definitely a lot of data that would suggest either end of the argument, right? Because I've also seen reports that say, well, we've got a lot of um, identical twins that both turned out to be gay. So, and you're saying, well, there's also data that says not all identical twins, if one is homosexual, the other one is too. There can be heterosexual twins as well. So how do we, how do we make sense of all this? Is it really now really about the science or is there an ideological component to it? Or maybe it's a mix because anybody who goes online and looks at different things, they're going to find both sides of the argument being supported, so to speak. Well, and that's a, that's a good point. So what do people do? In fact, if you go on the internet, you'll get a million different points on anything, usually by people who have no idea what they're talking about. So oftentimes, (laughs) (laughs) oftentimes searches on the internet for anything. I mean, you could get a runny nose and go on the internet and you'll hear, you know, you got everything from Ebola to, uh, 
<laughs> to anything. It's very confusing. This is what's most important. The individual has to say to himself, does this stuff apply to me? And there's only one rule of reparative therapy. The rule is when the therapist says something, the, the client's job is to ask himself, is this true for me? And if it's not true, for, you know, consider what the therapist has to say. But if it doesn't fit for you, then reject it. And we openly say that to our clients. If I make an interpretation or an assessment or something and this doesn't feel true for you, don't feel pressure to accept it. That's the truth. So, you know, if this model that I mentioned really calls out to a person where they go, wow, yeah, that's me. That's my story. Great. But if you're feeling like, ah, oh, this isn't for me, this doesn't really fit my experience, then this may not be the therapy to you for you. And I would say this to people in any topic. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with. But if a therapist says something to you and you really consider it, but you go, no, nah, it doesn't feel right, then, then it's not for you. This is after a thousand people that we've worked with. This is the model that we see. This is that that longing for male connection. Um, my clients will uh, let me talk to you about the two reparative drives, because I think that. That's a central focus that we need to have. Okay, so the two reparative drives are this. One drive is the drive is an attachment-based desire. Um, we, you know, uh, male attention, male affection, male approval. And the client is longing for this. And gay relationships um, give him a sense, like a, a feeling of like, yes, this is what I'm looking for. That's one reparative drive. The other reparative drive is what we call a shame-based reparative drive. Meaning, and this may not make sense to the listeners right now who don't have same-sex attractions, um, but for the clients, for my clients who have this, and for the listeners who have it, it's very likely to to have um, to resonate. Um, these are men who walk around. My clients, they walk around, and they often, because of their childhood backgrounds, they walk around with a lot of shame. They feel inadequate as men. They don't really feel like they belong in the world of men, um, and so. Sometimes they'll see this guy who looks like the shocking reminder of all they believe they are not, right? So they'll feel like, man, I'm not adequate. I don't like my body. I'm not confident in myself. I'm not decisive in the way that I'd like to be. And oh, whoa, look, along comes this guy and he seems to have it. He's all these things I feel like I am not. And that for my clients gives them like a sexualized jolt. And that's the shame-based jolt. It's like, wow, there's him and here's me and I'm on this lower level and and it's like wow like there he is and that kind of wow becomes sexualized in adolescence it's a way of what we call jumping the gap he's up there he's this alpha guy and I'm down here and I feel like this and it's like wow it's the sexuality is an attempt to jump the gap and making a, a sudden connection that's another drive that many of my clients describe this is this also brings up another point for me is why do you think in the majority of homosexual relationships, there seems to be an observable pattern of playing out what we would call a masculine and feminine energy, whether it's with lesbians or gay men? Why do you think that's happening if they've already decided we we are more drawn and attracted to same sex? There is still this interesting manifestation of this yin and yang in the majority of relationships uh, of homosexual relationships. Uh, why do you think that that's that's the case from a psychological or scientific standpoint? The, the most valuable way I can answer that question is just to tell you what my clients tell me, because I can talk about psychological studies and books, etc. But really, um, the clients, um, the client story is what's most important. So the clients and I'm going to be graphic here, but the, the, we have we have what's called tops and bottoms. This is a, a word that we use and that's used a lot in the gay community. Tops and bottoms. So. 
the, the, the top is the guy who's more dominant. He's the one penetrating the other guy. The other guy is being penetrated. Um, and so there's a, there's a couple different dynamics that are at play here. You know, in, in all different cultures around the world, this goes back to ancient cave paintings, um, uh, look, looking at modern day society, Eastern, Western cultures, it doesn't really matter. Um, masculinity has, across cultures and across time periods, been associated with doing. And femininity has been more associated with being done to. The masculine does, the feminine is done to. What are the earliest depictions of man? Well, look at cave paintings. They're always doing something. They're on horses, they have spears, they're out hunting. Um, and so we see this sexually. Uh, in the sexual act, the masculine does, the feminine is done too. That's how we perpetuate the human species. Right. And this is the, and this is the case in the animal kingdom at large, especially with, with most mammals. Exactly. This is, this is not a judgment call. This is just an observation about not only basic human anatomy, but human history. And so my clients will typically report that when they are the top, they are feeling like the more masculine one. And the one who's the bottom is in the more feminine role. He is being more submissive to the other man. And so we have to ask ourselves the questions, well, what's motivating the top and what's motivating the bottom? And oftentimes they have different motivations. So um, I'll give you an example of a, a client. I had two clients uh, yesterday, actually, tell me they had spontaneous shifts in their fantasy lives. They used to be bottoms and now they're tops. Um, and they said, what's happening? It both happened yesterday, two different guys. And they both reported the same thing. And this actually is not unusual. In the course of the therapy, many guys who identify with bottom as bottoms, after about three, six months, uh, it's not an exact number, but usually they start to identify spontaneously as tops. They start to be more in the masculine role. They have the, the homosexual attractions, but there's a shift. So here's what we usually see. And, and this is, I'll give, in fact, I'll just give you what these guys said to me. Um, um, I'll, I'll pick one guy. He's a Muslim guy. Um, and um, he said he was upset because he had just come back from the, his pilgrimage, I think, like a week ago. Um, and he said to me, he goes, I'm really excited. He says, I, I'm seeing f fewer same-sex attractions. I went on, my, on this pilgrimage. Um, he told me, this, it, I, and forgive me, a hajj? That's what he told me. Correct, yeah, the hajj, yeah. The hajj, okay, thank you. Um, and uh, he said, you know, I was spending time with all these men. And it was this great experience, and I've noticed just spontaneously, without even trying, I notice fewer attractions to men, I notice more attractions to women, and when I do have an attraction to men, uh, it's it's not, at, the fantasy isn't being a bottom, it's being a top. He said, why is it? And we were exploring it, and what he came to to identify was that when he, he had more of that shame-based drive earlier, when he's the bottom, it's like, wow, here's this alpha male, here's the things that I'm not. But look, he, I, his, his sexuality can kind of rub off on me. That was what he said. And I feel like it can, um, in my fantasy as the bottom, the top will, his masculinity and drive and ambition and all these things will rub off and somehow I will get what he has. Interesting. So it's almost like a, a powerful, energetic immersion through the physical connection. Yes, absolutely. That's the fantasy. That's the hope. Um, and so now what motivates uh, the top? Um, a guy, so the, my other client, I'll pick the other one yesterday, he was now you know, fantasizing being a top. And he said to me yesterday, he said, I've never even had this fantasy before. I've always been a bottom. And so we, we explored that. And I said, look, imagine the guy that you're penetrating in the fantasy and imagine looking into his eyes. Look deeply into his eyes. And who does he remind you of? And he said, oh, he reminds me of myself. He says, um, I was really bullied when I was a kid. Um, I really felt inadequate. And um, 
and I really wanted a male to connect and make me uh, more masculine. And he said, when I look into the eyes of the man I'm penetrating, it really reminds me of myself. And the word he used was soft, uh, when I felt really soft, and I felt like I wanted a man. And so it's like these basic desires, these these desires that he has that have just become sexualized. So he projected onto this man um, the parts of himself that he was trying to, to master. That's very interesting. So... W- I still am a little unclear as to, well, how is it that you can become either a top or a bottom? Because it seems like, according to reparative therapy's approach, this this is about that, you know, if we will, this um, desire to have a healthy, coherent, full sense of masculinity, right? Now, how, what determines whether or not I want to seek that as a dominating force or a receiving force? H- how does that kind of branch off or, or, or separate? Does this... The, the level, yeah, the level of assertion you happen to be feeling at the moment may be the greatest predictor. If an individual feels like, you know what, there's masculine guys and here's me, and I am totally not in the same category as those guys. That you now for my clients, again, I can't I can't generalize for every man in the world. All I can say is, is this is what my clients consistently report to me. When they are really feeling that, that I like I relinquish my masculine strivings. In those moments, they're the bottom. And on the days in which they feel more masculine and the days in which they feel more assertive, um, on those days, they say to me, I'm more likely to fantasize about being a top. Mm. Interesting. So there's even fluidity within the homosexual identity uh, in the male context. Absolutely. No question. We all have fluidity, by the way. All of us. If I, if someone were to ask a guy on the street, hey, tell me what your type is. What's the most sexually attractive type of woman? And if you go to that guy a year later and say, you ask him the exact same question, you're probably not going to get an exactly identical answer. So without question, there are variations. And much of it has to do with our inner emotional life at that particular moment. Mm-hmm. Now, your your clinic um, specializes in um, male homosexuals. Um, how about uh, females, lesbians? Um, how how is is this a whole other approach? And is this something you also have uh, specialization in? In many ways, this particular topic is outside my scope of competence. Um, okay. There are there are some similarities um, that that many of the female uh, clients um, describe, um, but I think. There are people who are much better answering, who can answer that question much better. Okay. Got it. I appreciate that. Now, let me ask you this. So what would you say are the stats of, you know, success rates, if you will, in in this approach? Uh, In other words, people who they came with this motivation of they want to have a heterosexual lifestyle and they actually achieved it. Do you do you have stats like that or are you willing to share? Absolutely. We're we're currently doing some research. and I think that there's going to be more. Uh, information coming out in the future on this um, in the next several years that will be more definitive. But for right now, I can give you a general principle that we see, which is that um, the client's level of motivation seems to be one of, if not the greatest predictor of how the client will do. If the client says, ah, I'm not really committed to this or I'm not sure, then his um, the change is less likely to happen. But if a client says, you know what, I'm pretty clear. This is not what I want. I want something different. I want whatever that is, whatever's level of motivation is, that's important. Another thing is if a client comes in and says, you know, I do have pre-existing heterosexual feelings, um, then I have found that, that the development of those heterosexual feelings tends to go much faster. Right. Now, some people might go, well, because it's not, you know, it doesn't work 100% for everybody, this is evidence that reparative therapy is a sham. 
What do you have to say about that? Sure. And I'd say we have to throw out all forms of therapy. We have to throw out weight, weight watchers. We, uh, if, it's, if it's weight, we have to throw out AA. We can't do anything. We have to drop penicillin. No one should use penicillin because a small percentage of people get, a, get um, uh, an allergic reaction to penicillin. So that kind of standard is not applied to any form of treatment in medicine, in psychotherapy. The truth of the matter is there's no one therapy that works for all human beings. That's just, that's just the truth. There's no one therapist. The best therapist in the world, whoever that person is, is not the best therapist for every single human being at the planet um, and at that particular time in their life. Um, and so I would, I'm, I'm the first to say that um, reparative therapy is not for all people. It certainly isn't. It's not ideally suited for people who say, hey, I'm gay. This is what I want. Uh, I want gay affirmation. So that's my, that's my thought on that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it makes yeah, it makes sense to me because, of course, like you said, not every single treatment in medicine works for everybody, right? You know, whether it's cancer um, patients or Alcohol Anonymous, you know, you mentioned AA. I mean, not everyone that goes to AA meetings stays sober, right? But but just because not everybody's successful, does that mean we throw out what? actually works for some people still like even if it's two or, or three out of ten people you know why not still allow that module to um be implemented right unless something better comes along sure right but that's my point here is like you know from a scientific standpoint and from you know the etiquettes of the american psychological association i always found it very interesting that this is not really a um acceptable or um promoted uh therapeutic process even though there are results for people no question the american psychological association is currently under pressure from lgbt organizations and they are uh, really i mean i'm gonna use a strong word here in some ways they're basically suppressing scientific data from the public this includes studies that they themselves have conducted and we have this information available. Uh, you can go to my father's website, josephnicolosi.com. Um, uh, on the right-hand side of the page, it says what research shows. And that's an excellent, excellent resource. If you want to look at the peer-reviewed studies, even published by the American Psychological Association, take a look at them, and it's a goldmine. Um, they are definitely withholding information from the public. The scientific data, an avalanche of scientific data, shows that people can change their sexuality, um, and that people are not born gay. And, you know, one thing that we should, that I think I would hope that all of us can agree on is that any form of treatment for anyone of any sexual orientation, this would apply to a therapy that involves shame or coercion or pain of any sort is obviously a, a therapy that no one should be in. That's so, so when we, Put those kinds of treatments aside and we look at, you know, licensed professional therapists um, who who really care about their clients. And we, and we see a client who's really motivated. We are those are factors that that strongly increase the probability of a positive therapeutic experience. Right. And, and just to kind of um, be clear here. I would get uncomfortable if, let's say, someone like yourself or your clinic was like, hey, everyone who is gay has to have reparative therapy. I would be against that because you're taking away from their choice and freedom, right, to, to live the way that they want. But I'm also against the fact that this isn't even accepted or considered a viable avenue in the psychological uh, association. 
right? That's that to me sh- says like, well, this is the tolerance, as you said, doesn't go both ways. And I actually um, pulled up the American Psychological Association here and under um, their section on what causes a person to have a particular sexual orientation. I'd like to read this because some people might go, well, you know, Joseph, you're biased or Kareem, you're biased. You guys already have your minds made up, but I'm going to read from you right now what it says about this. It's a short paragraph. Okay. So it says, quote, there is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permits scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that the nature and nurture both play complex roles, and most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. End quote. So what I hear from that is there is no consensus on what specifically causes sexuality, whether it's homo or hetero, and there, that means there's no actual gene right and and lastly that there is a number of factors and variables that play into why somebody is sexually oriented in the way they are right even within the homosexual or heterosexual community and the last line in this paragraph says most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation sure that could be true but also you know as you mentioned there's a huge socio-cultural element to this so if i'm living in a society which tells me there is no choice about it there's no other way about this then naturally i'm going to internalize this position more so than if you go to let's say you know um certain parts of italy or egypt or even thailand today you'll you can interview people and they'll say this is not something that we Uh, understand to be true, right? That there is no choice in the matter. And some of these environments may not have the same narrative that's being uh, perpetuated in the media, in film, in music, and so on and so forth. So this, this is also a big variable, I think, that many people tend to overlook, right? That what is commonly accepted as the dominant ideology on homosexuality does influence the scientific community's position. It does influence the everyday members of that society. Would you say there's some truth to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what you're touching on is really a First Amendment issue. The essence of the First Amendment is that individuals have the right to think, feel, pray, and say whatever they want without the government getting involved. And when we talk, when it talks about, when we talk about psychotherapy, um, it's basically we're saying free to be gay, free not to be gay. If a person wants to be gay, fine, be gay. If a person doesn't want to, fine, That's that should be fine too. And individuals should have the freedom and the choice and the right to explore whatever they want in the privacy of their own therapy. Um, and placing in limitations on an individual's right to seek therapy is what's really harmful. Uh, in fact, studies have shown that placing limitations on client self-determination, on denying them treatments which pr- prioritize their goals, those kinds of things harm the client. And um, we're talking about different societies and different cultures. That's what's most important from a First Amendment perspective, that if two people want to get together and have pro-gay therapy, they want to do pro-gay therapy, uh, gay affirmative therapy, that's their right. And if an individual wants to come in and not have limitations placed on his values and his goals and can be able to work on what he wants in the privacy of his own therapy, that's his right. Absolutely. I mean, that's pretty much what I understood to be the ethic of the American Psychological Association. But for some reason, when it comes to this 
it, it, it kind of goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's also a lot of other data that we're not going to get into today, but just also the fact that if there was more awareness and education about reparative therapy as a viable option that isn't um, uh, rejected or belittled, this could also become more of an alternative for people if they so choose. What, what's wrong with that, right? And we didn't even get into, for instance, a lot of the data represented by um, like Centers for Disease and Control, other uh, institutions that do medical research, and they find that when it comes to homosexual communities, there are higher rates of uh, medical and physical health concerns and issues, which we also don't necessarily highlight. So if I'm a person who is gay and, you know, I have a higher likelihood of being infected by HIV, for instance, and I'm not even allowed or told that, hey, because there's also a health risk to this, you, you do have, you know, an opportunity to consider um, reparative therapy. That's not accessible to individuals. Right. And, and this can be pretty scary if, if there's a 44 times more likelihood of getting infected with HIV as a gay man who is having sexual relations with men. You're bringing up an important point, which is basically how political correctness harms people. In some ways, it harms all of us. And if the job of the American Psychological Association or one of their 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 goals is to educate the public and to be there for the public health and to promote the cause of the public health. And so if we are on any topic, not telling people things because it might offend them, because it might upset them. And that is, that is us basically failing in our duty uh, as a profession. And if we're suppressing information from the public because we, we want to hurt someone, well, we're gonna, we might be hurting them worse in the sample, examples you just gave. I mean, you can go to the uh, cdc.gov Centers for Disease and Control and see the stats yourself. At the end of 2014, an estimated 615,000 gay and bisexual men were living with HIV. One in six gay and bisexual men living with HIV are unaware of it. And most gay and bisexual men get HIV through having anal sex without condoms. There are also staggering stats for other sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis. Uh, almost 65% of the first and secondary cases of syphilis were homosexual or bisexual uh, men. Um, gonorrhea, chlamydia, there are a bunch of things. Um, 17 uh, times more likelihood to get anal cancer. And uh, from 2010 to 14, um, HIV diagnoses remain stable, thankfully, at around 26,000 per year among all gay and bisexual men. And they and gay and bisexual men account for an estimated 70% of all new HIV infections. I mean, these are all stats that the Center for Disease and Control can, is showing us. So, I mean, these are not um, small numbers. These are things that are serious. And, uh, you know, any human being should be concerned for another human being's health. And all of these risks um, are much higher within this community. The truth of the matter is that there we are speaking to the average normal person where this, you know, the majority of people out there are not the elites. They're not on the ultra left wing and the ultra right wing. The everything that we're describing, like the point you just made, this is stuff that people deep down know and they want to hear someone else say it because they've been thinking it. And so it's good that you bring it up. 
Well, let's try to get a little more practical now. Can you maybe provide some examples of how reparative therapy has actually guided some of your patients towards their personal goals of sexuality, intimacy, and a more um, coherent sense of gender identity? In lay of the fact that many of my clients long for male connection, a big part of reparative therapy is helping the individual, challenging the individual to get more involved with other males, to connect with other guys. Um, and there are some very practical ways we can do this. One thing I'll say to people is, um, you know, men connect through doing. And in all cultures in the world, men connect through doing. I don't know if it's fishing. I don't know if it's playing sports. I don't know if it's... Sometimes it's just doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I know, exactly. Let's do that. Let's go sit around and watch a game and uh, complain about the losing team or something like that. Whatever that is. Yeah, exactly. That they get together and... Whatever I mean, technically, is fishing doing anything? You're doing. A, there's a lot of not doing when you're fishing, but a lot of guys love fishing. Anyway, go. So I tell my clients, what is a passion of yours? Look, look for your own passions. Is it art? Is it sports? Is it martial arts? Is it what is that thing that you really come alive when you're doing it? And then go find other men who are also doing this. That's a great way to connect with other guys. Um, another thing that my clients struggle with is they have trouble letting other men get to know them. Uh, they, they, they find interest in other men, but they tend to be reticent when it comes to revealing things. Remember, these are clients who feel uncomfortable with other men, they're often ill at ease with other men, and they have difficulty opening up and revealing themselves. So um, I say to challenge themselves every time they're with a man to be a little bit more open and direct and share more of themselves with other men. Um, the idea is not just to, to stop the homosexuality, that's not the ultimate goal because you still have those built-up needs for male attention, male affection, male approval. A lot of your work is to get those needs met in non-sexual ways, and that's very important. Um, another thing is to challenge your sense of shame, challenge your sense of inadequacy. I don't measure up with other guys. I can't relate to these other guys. They won't want, they'll reject me. To start to face your fears and to connect with these other men, that's a big part of it. Um, uh, you know, if, you, if a man out there has other men in his life who support him in his journey, who support him um, in his in his work uh, about feeling like a man among men. That's very important to surround yourself with safe men who can support you on your journey. That's another element of this. So those are some practical examples. Thank you. Now, actually, I kind of wanted to veer back to something interesting here. So you know, also in the American Psychological Association, there's the question of what about therapy intended to change sexual orientation from gay to straight? And and there, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it basically says that a lot of national mental health organizations have expressed concerns about these therapies uh, to modify sexual orientation. Um, and that there is no evidence that's what it says. It says there has been no scientifically adequate research to show that this therapy uh, can actually be safe or effective. What are your thoughts about that? Well, there's a partial truth to the idea that there's not a lot of scientific adequacy. Um, there have been, on both sides, there have been people who've done studies on this, and no one to date has done a scientifically rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled study. That is the gold standard um, in evaluations of, of therapies. And no one, one way or the other, has conducted something to that level of scientific rigor. Um, and so there's truth to that, but I can tell you this. Ultimately, it's the clients who have the final say on this topic. 
there's a documentary coming out, uh, the first documentary of its kind, specifically looking at men who've gone through this. Um, and the, uh, the filmmaker, who's pretty neutral on the topic, um, he's, he describes himself as an open, I think he says he's an open-minded skeptic. He's going around, he's finding men who've been through this treatment. He's actually interviewing them, going to their homes, and uh, the documentary should be out by December, uh, December or January, from what he told me. Um, and that may be around the time when this podcast comes out. So people will have to Google it. Um, but that should be interesting to have a very up close and personal look at men who go through this treatment. Um, that'll be the most revealing look of its kind ever. But the clients, I mean, my clients, they, I'm going to go back to this, but they have the right, they have the freedom to explore what they want in their therapy. We do know that, that, um, that limiting client choices in the therapy, um, by not allowing them to have access to forms of therapy that value their goals, um, that is harmful. That is detrimental to clients. And um, our clients consistently report positive outcomes. So I guess the one of the other questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, so according to your approach, uh, the, the reparative therapy approach, does it consider homosexuality a mental disorder, so to speak? Because a lot of people would be very offended by that. That's a great question. Um, no, I mean, the American Psychological Association has said that, that homosexuality is not a disorder. I think they said that in 1973, and we don't take issue with that. What we are here for is individuals who say, this doesn't work for me. I find this unsatisfying, um, or I was sexually abused as a child, and that affected me. Um, whatever the client, you know, the, if the client says, this doesn't, you know, I'm not being coerced to be here, but it just doesn't, it's not for me. I am here for those people, and that's what this therapy is for. Right. And again, based on the APA, it's clearly not genetic. So therefore, why not allow people to have that choice? Right. Even even if 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 you don't take the position that it's a it's a mental disorder, but that it's it's really a matter of allowing the individual to have the opportunity or the freedom to explore themselves in any therapeutic approach or model that they want. Exactly. We're, I'm not, we're not coming from a perspective that says this is a disorder or this is a disease and we need to cure or fix it. We're saying these are individuals who say that these particular thoughts and feelings don't match up with who they really believe themselves to be. And that is what we're here for. We are here to help those individuals, to support them in their journey. Um, we, have, we support their freedom and their right to make the choices that they want in their own lives. And that's what we're here for. Right. And also, you know, just as kind of um, highlight, I mean, now we also have this idea of gender identity. So if tomorrow I decided that I felt more inclined um, energetically to be a woman, um, I would expect people to respect that. Right. I mean, I, I can actually do that nowadays, at least in the Bay Area. Right. I can say, well, I feel like a woman, so I want people to start treating me as such. Um, and this is a, cons a matter of how I feel and subjectively what is my truth. This is a very common thing. Right. That's my truth. Right. So how come we accept this idea, but we won't accept somebody to say it's my truth that I would like to explore reparative therapy? I mean, I find it to be philosophically and logically inconsistent. Absolutely. Dr. Joseph, it's been a very interesting conversation, and, and I appreciate you coming on today. You've definitely um, shed some light on, on some of my own confusion about all of this. Um, what would be your advice to men out there, whether they're fathers, their sons, their brothers, their husbands, 
uh, regarding healthy masculinity. And um, maybe you can start with like the fathers out there who, you know, let's say uh, don't have a lot of time for their, you know, their children, whether they're male or female, um, and uh, how that could actually play a role in somebody's um, gender identity in the future. Uh, is that even, you know, an appropriate way to frame it? I mean, I, again, I don't want to be offensive to anybody, but uh, it seems like there is a um, connection here based on what you shared uh, regarding reparative therapy today. Yeah. Well, healthy masculinity is going to look a little bit different for every man. We're not, this is not a cookie cutter approach. Where we're trying to push every guy into a particular mold. But uh, what my clients often really long for is to feel like a man among men. I want to feel like an equal uh, with other men and um, that I can be myself with other men. And that's, that's powerful. So anything that is helping the man toward that goal um, is probably a good thing. And so if a son has interests that are different from his father, like uh, the son is into uh, more aesthetic things like painting and, and the arts and the father isn't, well, it may be for the father to, um, to really try to enter into the son's world, to be more patient, to say, hey, tell me what you're into. Let me, to bring me into your world. Uh, help me to understand you. And for the father to be patient with that um, and to really keep reaching out to his son um, and to to be patient, to listen. That might being that might mean being out of your comfort zone, um, but I think that can be tremendously healing. Right now, have you also found that amongst um, homosexual males, they sometimes, even though they may be immersed in a community where they're accepted and they have affection and attention and approval, um, do you still find that sometimes they still don't feel like men amongst men? Or let's say, gay a gay man doesn't feel like a true gay man amongst. Uh, other gay men. Absolutely. No question. For my clients who are wanting to feel like a man among men, and again, that doesn't mean macho. You don't have to be a, a macho guy to do that, but just to feel, maybe it's just something at your at your mosque or at your church. You just want to feel c- included, connected, and equal with other men. Um, for many of my clients, we want to examine what is what are the shame beliefs that you're telling yourself that are keeping you from being a man among men. Oftentimes it's not that other men are shaming him, but the client is shaming himself. He sees a bunch of guys and he approaches them and already he kind of, he, t- he tenses up. He's already anticipating rejection. He's anticipating doing something that's going to mess things up. And we have to help him to explore what are his self-limiting beliefs? What's the shame that you're, what's, what is the shame statement we call it that you're telling yourself and helping the client to work through that sense of shame so that he can be more assertive. He can be more accepting of himself that he can connect to other men. Um, that's a necessary prerequisite to get that male attention, male affection and male. Right. Approval. And that's good that you clarify that because I, I like how you said this isn't about being a specific type of man, right? It doesn't mean all men have to be alpha and assertive and domineering. That's not what you're talking about here. This is about the basis of a human need no. of feeling affection, attention and approval with other men and of course with other women right it goes both ways and 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 across as a, and and across as well right i mean even a homosexual excuse me even a heterosexual male would want to feel attention affection and approval by women right and if he doesn't this can also um cause certain issues around identity and shame and security and confidence so this is really almost a human um i'm almost thinking about maslow's hierarchy of needs here right this idea of self-actualization in an emotional and intimate sense exactly no that's a very important distinction and there are maybe therapists out there who say oh you need to become macho in order to be straight 
that's a different type of therapy. That's not the kind of therapy I do. It's not the kind of therapy we've ever done. We're not here trying to make guys into being macho. Uh, we just want them to to feel like men among men. That's that's really our goal, to be assertive, to connect with other guys. Um, that's our, our goal. And in a certain sense, we're not even changing the sexual orientation. We don't try to change sexual orientation. This surprises people, too. This is about sexual orientation changing as a byproduct of the deeper work. As the man overcomes his sense of shame, as he works through the child sexual, uh, childhood sexual abuse he went through, whatever those other factors are, as we do the, the general therapeutic work of dealing with those underlying factors, the sexuality seems to change as a byproduct. That's what the clients consistently report. So ironically, I say to my clients, don't try to change. Don't try to change your sexuality. Just work on these deeper issues, overcoming your shame, feeling adequate as a male, etc. And that seems to be the recipe that that helps my clients the most. Very interesting. Yeah. It's almost like um, if you work with the notion of self-identity, you know, sexuality, ambitions, motivations, all of these things are connected in branches of it. And it's always working together. As we know, human beings are, um, you know, uh, integrated creatures, so to speak. That's right. Exactly right. Dr. Joseph, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And um, you can check out thebreakthroughclinic.com to learn more about Dr. Joseph's practice and what he has to offer. So take the time to check that out. And thanks again for, for coming on today. Thank you so much, Kareem. Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem. That's patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem.